Okay, good. Good. Very good. Great to be with everybody today. Let's pray and get started, okay? Lord, uh, your word says that it is the glory of God to conceal a matter and it is the glory of kings to uncover it. And so would you help us, Lord, to uncover your truth, uh, to be uh, those who would uh, mine out, Lord, all of the riches of your glory, all of the treasures, Lord, that are hidden in your word. And uh, Father, we have the promise that if we dig uh, deep enough, Lord, that we will uh, see wondrous things from your law. And so, Father, we pray that you'd help us today, Lord. Use your word to minister unto your people. I pray that you would use your word uh, to sanctify us, to instruct us, to help us to think the mind of Christ, help us to think the thoughts of God after him. And in doing so, Lord, help us to discern, Lord, spiritual things. And even as uh, uh, Jesus said of the new covenant scribes, that they will pull forth from the law, Lord, both old and new things. And so help us to see, <clears throat> Lord, the, uh, not only the organic nature of your revelation, but also the progressive nature of your revelation and all that has come to us through Christ, uh, who is our great prophet, priest, and king, and how all of redemption and all revelation centers upon him, his work, his person, what he has done, what he has accomplished, and all for the sake of his people, Lord, to bring us into covenant fellowship with him and to bring us uh, home to heaven. And uh, so, Father, we pray that you would revive our hope today. Uh, encourage us, Lord, if we are downcast, we pray that you would be the lifter of our head. If we are afflicted, we pray that through your commandments we would be revived. And so, Father, we just ask for you to minister to us, and uh, we pray that your Spirit would accompany your word as a means of grace today, Father. We thank you, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Great. Well, uh, we continue uh, to talk about the Spirit uh, of Christ, and uh, I think I did turn my microphone on, so I thought that was maybe brother telling me that we didn't. And so what this results in is something like uh, what we can call a Christo uh, uh, new mythology. Right, and that is because Christ and the Spirit are brought into such close uh, relationship one to another that this is basically, you know, like uh, what you get. You know, you you have Christ and the Spirit, and we've been looking at, you know, a section of Scripture very important, Luke chapter one, uh, and today, oh boy, let's let's uh, get our bearings straight here real quick, uh, because we're only going to cover. Uh, the second description here, I guess we can say uh, verse 32, verse 32 down to 33. So 32:33, and what we could call the son of David. And so we've already kind of looked at Jesus as the son of God. And we talked about what is involved there as the Spirit is bringing this holy child into the world. Who he is bringing into the world, he says, will be called the Son of God. And we looked at that and we talked about the Trinity and we talked about, uh, we talked about his deity. We talked about his impeccability, being sinless. Uh, we talked about the purpose of his uh, sinlessness was to be a sacrifice. All these things. But now we come to this uh, aspect of the incarnation, of the conception of the Son by the Spirit. And when we say that the Son 
is, uh, excuse me, that the Spirit is conceiving the son of David. What we're just saying is that the Spirit is obviously involved in the conception of Christ and in bringing Christ into the world. But what is going on uh, is that this is, you know, the Spirit moving redemption along. This is the Spirit, you know, doing his part and bringing about uh, the... Uh, the eschatological hope of the people of God. I hope to show you that today. So I want to focus on four aspects uh, of this of this thing here, uh, the title, and I guess the implications of that. Maybe I should look at my notes to get this right. But the first one would be that he is the covenant uh, servant. And uh, how so? How do you guys... Well, I should be the one backing this up, but how would you back it up, right? How is uh, the fact that he is the son of David, how is the, he the covenant servant of God? Uh, anybody have any concepts there? Philippians anybody? 2? Philippians chapter 2. Where it says uh, he came in the form of a servant or in the likeness of men. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm? Isaiah 53. Yeah, very good. Yeah, both of those emphasize the idea that Jesus is coming as the servant. Uh, and as God's, you know, it says in Revelation chapter 15 that they sang the song of Moses the bondservant of the Lord. And so we know that Moses, as the mediator of the Old Covenant, was God's covenant servant in that sense. Uh, and how is uh, Jesus, the Davidic son here, the covenant servant of God? Yeah. Yeah, precisely. So it has to do with the Davidic covenant, right? So and the, the very fact that he comes to fulfill the Davidic covenant makes him the covenant servant par excellence. He is the one that fulfills uh, all of God's covenant ambitions in the world. And furthermore, as we're going to see, is that he's God's covenant servant because in him all of God's covenant interests converge. So it's no longer just... Uh, the covenant of David, it's, 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 it's that he's also fulfilling, uh, the one that fulfills the covenant of David also fulfills the covenant of Abraham, he fulfills the covenant of Moses, he fulfills, you know, the covenant of grace, the covenant of works, you know, all of these things all have to do with him. And how does he do that? Well, he does that supremely through the what? Through the new covenant. And as the new covenant arrives, so arrives all of the promises, like you're talking about, of previous covenant administrations. And so uh, how do we see that here? Well, look at here. It says here, he will be great. Uh, this is Luke, uh, you know, our text, chapter 1, verse 32. He'll be great, and we call the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. That is a very, very serious language there, uh, because up to this point, the people of God have lived under millennia of waiting for and anticipating and expecting this final kingdom promise to come. Uh, you see, it's the, all their hopes is in this. Uh, everything is hoped for here. Uh, what is another aspect of this? Well, uh, in addition to this, he is also messianic. Uh, <clears throat> what we could call he is the messianic redeemer. And uh, because, of course, uh, the Davidic son is also the redeemer of God's people. And I hope to show you guys that. Uh, you know, all throughout the Old Covenant, you have this where, uh, you know, previous, uh, almost like what we could call, you know, Christ foreshadowers, people that prefigure Christ and his redemption 
in the old and what they're supposed to usher in. Uh, maybe just one example of that. For example, you could you could look at uh, Joshua, who is definitely a Christ foreshadower himself. Uh, look with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter four, for example. Hebrews chapter four, and I guess uh, I'll put this over here just so that y'all can track along with me some of these critical texts. Uh, Hebrews uh, four. Uh, what do we look at here? Uh, four through ten, really. Four through ten. You could always expand. You could always expand the context out more than that. But as we think about what Joshua was as a prefigure of Christ and his redemption, what he was supposed to do, right? He said, for he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, they did, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to, be, failed to enter because of disobedience, he, ha, he again fixes a certain day. Wow. Today, saying, through David, after so long a time, just as, uh, uh, just as uh, has been said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For, watch this now, if Joshua had given them rest, uh, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, even as God did from his. In other words, what is it saying here? That Joshua was just a preview, a precursor to the rest that is available now in Christ. And so what was Joshua supposed to do, you know, as a Christ figure? What was his task? You guys remember? Concerning what? Yes. So he takes us to the land. Now here in Hebrews Chapter 4, the concept of the land is connected to the concept of Sabbath. So really the land was a Sabbath land. Why is that important? Because in the context of a sabbatical land promise, if you would, uh, this is where people would enter into a state of rest, right? Uh, Where they would cease from their work. But, you know, the whole concept of resting in God, resting salvifically in Christ, was, uh, uh, you know, to be conceived of in this, in this fashion. And so when it says there remains a rest for the people of God, what, what, it, what it means is that, you know, we still have a heaven to go to, right? There is a final installment of this future resting place, and it's no longer found in the sabbatical uh, land of Joshua. Now it's found in the heavenly rest that we find in Christ. And so that's kind of like where it's going. Uh, the reason I tie into this is because one of the key functions of Joshua, uh, as if you would, like a messianic type, a messianic redeemer of God's people, was to give them deliverance from what? From their enemies. That's the whole purpose of the land, you guys. The whole purpose of the land is that Israel would be taken out of the conflict with Egypt, right? And he, they would be taken out of conflict with uh, these uh, spiritual forces that would seek to destroy them. Later on, uh, matter of fact, later on, all of this is cast in the, in the, in the concept of uh, like a, 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 a leviathan, conflict right you see look pastor Emilio's lost his rocker now he's out of his mind now what's going on or also egypt is called rehab which is another these are all rehab uh these these kind of things these are all connected to the uh ta ta nim 
that's the Hebrew word for dragon. See that? So what's going on here? Turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 74, verse, I think it's verse 11. I think. Let's see here. Just to show you like how I connected all of this. Like, man, you lost me now. You went from Joshua to dragons to Leviathan. Oh, well, yeah, that's because that's what the Bible does, you know. Uh, you know, uh, when it's talking about delivering God's people, the, Isra- the, the, uh, the concept of deliverance, the Exodus themes that are picked up in the Bible, notice the way that Scripture talks of this, beginning in verse, no, I don't know, verse 12, I guess. Yet God is my king from of old. Se- uh, Psalm 74, where are we at? 74 verse 12, yet God is my king from of old who works deeds of deliverance in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea. Where did that happen? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And so this is all talking about the Exodus. Okay, Exodus, why is Exodus so important in the songs of Israel? Why do they sing about it all the time? Because Exodus amounts to redemption. Okay. Think about it that way, like uh, he redeemed people out of Egypt. You see what I'm saying? So Exodus is Old Covenant, Old Testament redemption, okay? And so that's what he's talking about here. So you divided the sea by your strength. Watch this now. You broke the heads of the what? The Tatanim, the sea monsters. Uh, Consequently, where are the sea monsters first mentioned in the Bible? Anyone? First mentioned in the Bible. Anyone? (laughs) <laughs> Genesis what? Oh, I don't know. Chapter 1. <laughs> right? What day? I think it's the fifth day of creation. Somebody look it up. It says somewhere there, after he says it's good, it's good, it's good, after he makes the stars and the sun and the moon, then he says, and he made the sea monsters also. Tatanim. It's like, think about it, right? Like, he creates the whole universe, the whole world. Uh, like, last night I was watching, uh, you guys watch the... Uh, you guys watch the videos Planet Earth? Keith, we used to watch this a lot. I was watching Planet Earth, and I was just amazed at, first of all, how they got the cameras in there and stuff, but it was all like underwater, and it was showing dolphins, how these dolphins would go down, and they'd find these, uh, they'd find these plants down at the bottom of the seafloor, and they would scrub up against these plants, because these plants, you see, they have medicinal properties. They have antibacterial properties, and so they rub themselves, and they're teaching this baby dolphin to go, go through it and go rub himself. It's just amazing. Anyway, so uh, there's a lot of things under the ocean, <laughs> right? There are millions of kinds of creatures under the ocean. Why did he zero in on the tatanim, you know what I mean? Like he could have said dolphins, you know, but he does. But he, in a sense, he does because he speaks about it's teeming with life, remember? Swarms of, of, of uh of, of things like that. But, uh, but no, it, it, I think that um, what happens in creation is that God is showing his sovereignty over the powerful beasts of the water, like the dragons, the, the whales, the, the sea monsters, things that they're still even today discovering that they can't figure out. Like, for example, I saw this, uh, th- they showed this video the first time ever recorded, the biggest uh, great white shark ever recorded on film. It was like 24 feet or something like that. Just gigantic, I mean, gigantic thing, you know. And, uh, and that all shows God's power and sovereignty over all of these kind of cosmic forces. Uh, this will intersect, by the way, with our teaching on Antichrist. Why? Because what do you find? Well, you find that the whole concept of a dragon... Okay, if we think about a sea creature, uh, he is connected to Pharaoh. It is also c- connected to uh, evil kings like Babylon, 
And it's ultimately connected to Antichrist, who is called the dragon or the beast. Right? It's all connected to that. It's all emerging to that. It's all leading to that. And so what else does he says? You crush the heads of Leviathan. You see that there? So that, I would say, that is set in what's known as Hebrew parallelism. In other words, sea monster Leviathan are put in synonymous parallelism next to each other. It's just a apocalyptic imagery that God is using to show his conquest over the evil beings in the world, the, the, the sinister forces, you know, things that man are so afraid of and can't overcome in their own strength. You gave him, real quick, you gave him as food uh, for the creatures of the wilderness. So that concept of the wilderness idea there, tying us back to Exodus. You broke open the springs of torments. You dried up ever-flowing streams. Uh, yours is the day. Yours is also the night. You have, so uh, remember the concept of day and night with Exodus. What does that have to do with anything? Day and night. What happened day and night? Oh, you had a pillar, yeah. You had a cloud by day. You had a pillar of fire by night, right? Showing his utter sovereignty over all of that. You have uh, prepared the light and the sun. See that? You have established all the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. So anyway, just all these creational themes showing us all of this redemption. And so what is necessary is for God's people to get out of this, get out of this conflict and to go into the land, a sabbatical land of promise where they can have peace and rest from their enemies. Who's going to do that? The messianic redeemer. Yes, sir. Sorry for neglecting you. So I had to get that out. It's like theological vomiting or something. <laughs> Sorry. So the apocalyptic language seems, and this is just how I see it, seems to hide some of the themes that are clearly being seen right now. So it hides it for other people, um, and it seems to expose it for other people. For example, John the Revelator, I would assume, saw things and was exposed to things that the common Jewish person may not have known. So is apocalyptic language, my question is, is apocalyptic Uh, I think there's a case for that, actually. I think there is a case for uh, the language of eschatology, really apocalyptic language, being almost cryptic, yeah. right? Where God, uh, it's almost like it needs to be decoded. You know what I mean? It's not like a hidden, deeper type meaning. It's there. You can find it. It's in the text. You know what I mean? But uh, it's definitely not, uh, it's not something that, yeah, it's not a surface level type of thing. You know what I mean? There, There is a lot of interpreting involved, so... Uh, yeah, that's a good question. Yes, sir. I would say with the darkness, I mean, you can come across like Matthew 27, 45. Out of six hours, darkness fell upon the land. Which is the ninth hour. That was more than day. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it just shows his, um, I mean, that right there was showing like the end of the age, you know what I mean, had arrived, you know, as the cosmic powers themselves are disrupted. You see what I'm saying? It shows like there's a disruption in the order of the age, and that's all just apocalyptic end time sort of, you know, imagery. But uh, somebody else, uh, Brian, I think. I was going to say, just as far as even like some of the Davidic ones, specifically Solomon's image, a picture of or a type of Christ in the center. Yeah. Solomon's reign, that is like the pinnacle mm. of Israelite, um, like safety. They had rest, the temple was built, mm. uh, the glory of God was present in the temple. Mm. So just that idea of who rests in that sense, but obviously it wasn't fulfilled there. Yeah. Um, but it was kind of the pinnacle. I mean, obviously they went off into exile and so forth, but ultimately yeah. it shows that it's being culminated in 
Yeah, amen. Actually, my other two points that I have here is that the uh, that the son of David is also the temple builder, and uh, and finally, he is also the kingdom. Uh, you guys can tell, like hyphenating words, kingdom ruler, and uh, that's kind of where everything's going. You know, it's I don't know why, but God. You know, I don't question him on this, but for some reason, God cast all of this in this kind of language. You know what I mean? The language of a covenant and a servant coming uh, to be mediator of God's people. The language of a messianic redeemer who comes to redeem. And this is kind of still where we're at. So let's go back to that. Go back to Luke chapter one, just so that you can see. Right. It's like to enter rest is to enter the land of sabbatical redemption where God's people enjoy undisturbed fellowship with God, undisturbed fellowship with with God. This is the key. That's what God always wanted in the Exodus, right? Chapter 4, verse 19 and 20, that my son may serve me. That's the whole point of it all. Why? Because Exodus, uh, you guys done with the uh, Tatanim over here? Right? It's uh, fascinating, isn't it? I think it's fascinating. Uh, Also, uh, what was I going to say? Oh, Exodus. Exodus chapter 19, verse 6, that becomes critical. That's the whole point. Also, Exodus chapter 4, verse 19 and 20, that's where Exodus, uh, that's where Israel is called God's son, right? Consequently, where is Exodus chapter 4, verse 19 and 20 quoted again? Hosea, well, almost. Hosea 11. Where is Hosea 11 quoted again? Matthew chapter 2, verse 15. That's the way the biblical theology works. You go from the Exodus historical event itself to the prophet Hosea using that event prophetically of the kingdom people. That is then picked up again, and that is then fulfilled messianically through Jesus Christ. No longer of a nation, but through Christ. He is the ultimate son, you see? And so, uh, yeah. I want to start with controversy, but I'm You always do. I'm joking. You're very docile, brother. That's a compliment. <laughs> Power under control, right? How does, because I would say it's clear, I think many of you would say that's, that's kind of clear that that's just happening. How does this dispensation and this... Uh, oh, we can't. Who cares? <laughs> yeah, they don't like any of it, you know. <laughs> Well, the way they respond to it is that, yeah, you know, even though, you know, even though the Messiah surely fulfills those types of prophetic things, that does not preclude that Israel in the future will have some, still some literal fulfillment of those things, you know? And so, like, when we deal with our typology, remember, you have the, the heavenly archetype, and then we have the earthly or the historical type, and then we have the anti-type, right? And so what we would say here, for example, right, is that the land promise and well let's not even do that let's just say you know the son of god right of god that was behind israel israel as son being a type and then when the anti-type arrives arrives christ is the absolute manifestation of the son which this is what happens okay so we see that this is the direction that typology should work. The problem is for, uh, 
for dispensationalists is that when they arrive at this, they still see a return backwards, back once again to typological reality, which is false. I, I would say anyway. Huh? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So it's like, yeah, that's right. It's so and it's like for them, you know, everything is fulfilled in the uh, millennium, and so the millennium is just the, the reason why everybody fights. You know what I mean? Because if they see, you know, a literal millennium on a little earth with a literal temple with a literal a literal throne of David with Jesus literally sitting there and literal saf- sacrifices being introduced back into the literal land, right? Then what we would say is, that, no, man, you're going backwards in redemptive history. It's like now that the truth. And the substance has come. You don't go backwards again to the types. That's gone. It's almost, you know, like real staunch reformed people, not me, you know, but real staunch reformed people, you know, they would say that's almost blasphemous, you know, because you're going backwards in God's redemptive purpose. You see, it's like a betrayal of the whole gospel. It's like, you know, yeah. So instead of seeing that as, as a archetype of Christ, they see it as a restoration of Christ back to what was originally supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Or the people of God. That's the redeemed of God. So they see it as Christ restoring that back yeah. to where it was supposed to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They yeah, see yeah. it as part of redemption unfolding throughout history. The whole hermeneutic is off. And so the reason why we can't even get to step one together, you know what I'm saying, is because they begin with a whole different hermeneutic, you know. Their hermeneutic is like, no, 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 no. All the promises that are made to Israel in the Old Testament have to be literally fulfilled. Okay? Huh? By ethnic Israel. Yeah, that's right. Not spiritual Israel. Yes, sir? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to take a shot at John MacArthur today in the sermon. <laughs> no, no. Just uh, on something minuscule. I actually, you know, what, what's, actually, what's, what's actually interesting, you know what Thessalonians, where it talks about, uh, we talked about this last week, where it talks about the Antichrist, will sit in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. I looked at MacArthur's commentary. He actually has nothing on a literal temple Nothing. Like, there's nothing in his commentary that suggests a literal temple, a literal city, a rebuilt future temple. He doesn't get into anything that you would expect him to get into. He just kind of leaves it kind of open, you know, which I thought was, oh, maybe he's changing his mind or something. Uh, yeah, yeah, well, that's kind of, what does uh, First, Cor- First Corinthians say? You know, bad company corrupts good morals. Well, in this case, covenantal company corrupts dispensational morals. <laughs> That, he surrounds himself with nothing but covenantal guys, and so what do you expect is going to happen? Back to this. As the messianic redeemer, keeping a, a watch on the clock, look at the way that redemption is conceived of in Luke 1, uh, beginning in 68, Zechariah's prophecy, because like I said, you know, to enter Sabbath rest, in a sense, to enter the true land, true redemption is to be rescued from your enemies, uh, okay, uh, that's the way that they understood that. And so the Spirit speaking prophetically about these exact themes through the prophecy of Zechariah. Listen to what he says in verse 68. Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished what? Redemption for his people. How? The horn, the Messiah. There's the Messianic Redeemer. And has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. You see? And he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets of old. Salvation, what? From our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us to show mercy uh, to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. Now watch, look at verse 73. So critical. The oath. So how do we define a covenant? Yeah, like 
The Bible has no problem equating God taking an oath with covenant language. <laughs> you see? So the oath which he swore to our father Abraham. Well, so now as we're thinking about, uh, I saw people taking pictures of all this. That's what you're supposed to do, by the way. Don't take a selfie in Sunday school. Take a picture of this. You know what I mean? That's what you need. So, um, but you see what happens now. Now, as the David, the Davidic, uh, you know, son comes, also now you have a reference to who? To Abraham. And so it's almost like Abraham is really, uh, really important here. He never loses sight of this. God always remembers his promise that he made, his covenant, his holy covenant, the oath or the promise that he swore to Abraham, our father. What is it? Uh, to grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, he said, rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. Remember I told you the whole purpose of, of Exodus 4 is so that they can serve God, right? Without fear in the context of a, uh, of a, of a, of a covenant fellowship, if you would, in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. So isn't that remarkable there? Just the convergence of all of these uh, themes and ideas. Now, uh, notice the emphasis again on enemies. Enemies. What do we find throughout the Gospels? I think what we find throughout the Gospels is that the people were mistaken in, in terms of the nature of the kingdom. What is the kingdom? Enemies. Who are our enemies, right? Those kinds of things. Uh, Son of man. You know, all of these messianic themes and ideas. uh, These are supposed to be question marks, you know, something like that. It's slippery up here. You get ready. But anyway, uh, you know, like the people, they don't understand the kingdom. They don't understand who God's enemies are. They don't understand the nature of the Son of Man. Hey, we thought the Son of Man was this. Hey, we thought the Son of Man was supposed to do that. What happened? You know what I mean? You see that all throughout the Gospels. You know what I mean? Even after the resurrection. Luke 24. Let me find it for you guys. What does it say? Remember at the road to Emmaus? Great confusion, even after the resurrection, right? Oh, man, what was I supposed to say here? Oh, yes. Verse 19. Oh, they said, well, don't you understand what's happened in these days? Jesus said, in what things? They said to him, things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word and sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and the rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But... We were hoping, there's the hope, hope of Israel, that he, that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. See, so they still were looking for some sort of, you know, uh, uh, source, some sort of a consummate manifestation of the kingdom of God uh, in their time. And so what happens even in Galilee? You know, Jesus is going around the streets of Galilee and the regions of Galilee, and there's fame is going on. People are coming out to see him. The whole world, the Pharisee says, are coming to him, right? So all of these throngs of people are coming out. And so the people see the physical, visible manifestation of what's going on. And what does it say? They took him by force and tried to make him king. They tried to force him to be the king right there, right at that moment. Like, let's do it. You know, let's kill the Romans. Let's set up the kingdom. And let's be done with it. 
But they didn't understand all the way down to the resurrection. They didn't understand that the one to redeem Israel would not redeem it in that way. That that's not the nature that it would happen uh, in their time. Even in Acts, one second, Juan, uh, even in Acts chapter 1, right? I think it's verse 8. Is it at this time that you are going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Right? They still don't understand like the nature, the already not yet nature of the kingdom of God. You know, they, they, they don't perceive it as a victory until or unless, you know, the enemies are destroyed in their presence. Juan, I'm sorry, go ahead now. Mm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely they do. Uh, matter of fact, um, our tour guide in Israel when we were there, even though he's not a religious Jew, it's really amazing to me how often Donnie was saying that he's a secular, atheistic type Jew, and yet he was so passionate about religious things. <laughs> and one of the things he was passionate about was like, well, we don't believe Jesus was the Messiah because Jesus was supposed to destroy our enemies. And so we're still here dealing with the Palestinians and Hezbollah and everything else. So that couldn't have happened. You see that? He's committing the same exact error. He's saying, well, we still have the presence of the Palestinians and Hezbollah and Iran and everything like that. So Jesus could not have been the Messiah. See, <laughs> the exact same thing. So, um, yeah. So um, what are our true enemies, brothers and sisters? Not flesh and blood. But what are they? Enemies of the cross. What are the enemies of the cross? What is it, Kedab? Uh, uh, okay, all right, the world. Right? Flesh, let's just, let's just get right to it, sin. And then you mentioned the devil. Oh, yeah. So turn to 1 Corinthians. No, 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 I'm sorry. Turn to Isaiah, excuse me. Isaiah chapter 20, I almost messed up my whole thing that I was going to do. Isaiah 25, turn there and I shall turn to 1 Corinthians, okay? This is the way it works. Isaiah 25, and then I'll go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 where some of our enemies become clear. See? While you're there, I'm going to read to you a very familiar text. And this is 1 Corinthians chapter 15 beginning verse, oh, I don't know, verse 54. What, but what, but th- but when this perishable will have put on imperishable and this mortal will be put on immortality, then will come about the saying that was written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so there uh, ultimate true victory of the people of God is conceived in a spiritual way over sin, death, and the devil, and, you know, hell. That's the way that we triumph. That's the way that we're victorious. Now, you're in Isaiah 25, right? Read, read uh, verse 13. Somebody, uh, uh, go ahead. Uh. Go ahead, brother. There is no 13? Isaiah 25, verse 8. Come on, guys. <laughs> You know what I meant. Come on. <laughs> Isaiah 25, uh, tw- 25 verse 8. <laughs> he will swallow up death forever. Mm. God will wipe away tears from all faces. 
and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. All right. Now, so, we have a problem if you are a premillennial dispensationalist. Why? Notice the reference here. Does anybody have a footnote where it says he will wipe away tears away from all faces? Verse 8. In my Bible, you certainly do have a cross-reference to Isaiah 65. Y'all have that in your cross-reference maybe? Anybody testify to that? Can I get a witness? (laughs) Anyone? Right? And what is the context of Isaiah 65, Kata, without looking there since you know what it is? <laughs> okay, yeah. And more importantly, it is what? The new creation, right? That is what's going on there. And again, you have a reference, 65, 18, or at least in the context there, right? You have the, you have the reference there to uh, the eyes, you know, uh, uh, tears, right? All, all of that, right? I just want you to keep your eyes on that. And then, uh, so when is that going to happen? New creation. So when do the tears, when does God wipe away the tears from everybody's eyes? New creation. Isaiah 65, verse 18, makes sense, right? How do you know that for certain? Revelation chapter 21. Uh, what is it, verse 4? Verse 4. What's Revelation chapter 21 about? The new creation. Just look at your Bible. Huh? New Jerusalem. Yeah, new Jerusalem, new creation. That's right. Make perfect sense, right? There's only one problem with that. Now, you know, dispensationalists would say, yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) Because that's after the millennium when the millennium is over. There's only one problem with that. The problem with that is that Revelation chapter 7 says the same exact thing at the return of Christ. So look at Look at Revelation 7. Revelation. Where are we at? Verse 17. Yeah. I mean, this kind of is like a dispensational killer right here. How do you have Isaiah 65 in Revelation chapter 7? Well, Revelation chapter 7 does not deal with the new creation. Revelation chapter 7 deals with the end of the age and the return of Jesus Christ. Seemingly, at the return of Jesus Christ, that's when everybody, you know, the tears. And what's, what's that all about, by the way? He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. What is that about? Why are we crying? <laughs> right? What's the whole point of that? It's just showing, like, you know, that we've been vindicated, right? It's showing, like, God is going to realize all of our hopes and dreams that we've ever had. He's going to redeem all of our suffering, I mean, remember, man, this is, I mean, you know, Revelation chapter 7 is talking about the end when Christ returns. So it kind of skips forward, at least that verse, skips over what Revelation chapter 12, Revelation chapter 13, Revelation chapter 16, what they're talking about, which is what? War with the beast. And it says in Revelation uh, 13 uh, verse uh, 7, that in Revelation chapter 13 verse 7, the beast actually overcame the saints. And then it says in Revelation 12 that the saints overcome how? Through their martyrdom, right? Through the death of their witness, <laughs> right? Um, all of that. And so it's like, yeah, he'll wipe away every tear, meaning that God will take away sorrow from his people. And uh, in place of sorrow, he will give us joy. 
and he will wipe away our tears as you know as a that's just kind of like uh that's just metaphorical of saying that he will comfort us for all eternity as we see the lamb in the center of the throne right as we see the lamb ruling and reigning and uh and yeah so that's when all of this happens and so um uh yeah so uh first corinthians chapter 15 is quoting Isaiah 25, verse 8, right? That's when, that, so Isaiah 25, verse 8 tells us that even, uh, what is it? 25, 8. And so what this is telling, telling us is that the eschatology of the prophets, they were looking forward to that time. They themselves were looking forward to the victory over the true enemies of God. I think we fail to understand how much we converge with Old Testament, Old Covenant saints and with their hope and their realization uh, and, and the things that they hoped in. Like, for example, you know, I was listening to this podcast and these guys were talking about the Abrahamic covenant. And they were talking about the promises that were made to Abraham. It says in Re- uh, Romans chapter 4, verse 13, that Abraham was promised the whole world, right? And so if you think about it, just even on a practical, on a, on a logical level, okay, you know, like God tells Abraham, like, look around, you know, north, south, east west everywhere that you look everywhere that you step i will give to you right all this land look up to the stars many is the number of the sea i will multiply your descendants there's only one problem here abraham's gonna die (laughs) you know what i mean like he's gonna die and is he gonna really see the fulfillment of all of that (laughs) you know in his lifetime no but Hebrews assures us that Abraham understood God's words to signify that those promises were going to be fulfilled in the new creation, not in his time, right? Not in the borders of Palestine, but in the borders of the new heavens and the new earth. Any questions, comments, feedback, criticisms? You gave a reference to Revelation where it says uh, Abraham will be given the whole world. No, no, Romans chapter 4, uh, verse 13. Yeah. Yeah, because that's important because what that shows us is that in the mind of the Apostle Paul, it was not just the borders of Jerusalem, apparently, that uh, Abraham was promised. In Paul's thinking, he understood perfectly what it meant, which was a cosmic promise. You see? Should we stop? Or We don't have time for the temple builder. There's no way. Can I read something to you? <clears throat> this use of Isaiah by Paul shows the eschatological trajectory of Old Testament prophetism and their vision for true restoration. It's all messianic. Christ is certainly the center of all Davidic concepts of redemption, for the bestowal of the Davidic throne in messianic fullness is redemption. Here is the Spirit bringing the final David into the world. The prophetic horizon of final or true restoration has dawned. What What was announced by the angel Theophany to Mary was taken up into its covenantal considerations by the prophecy of Zechariah. The arrival of David's son is the arrival of the messianic age of redemption. It is precisely the nature of this redemption which the New Testament Gospels are focused on depicting through the Spirit's work in Christ. In other words, what I'm saying, I think, is that when you look at the Gospels, all the work of the Spirit in the Gospels upon Christ, through Christ, as he's casting out demons, as he's healing people, as he's, you know, uh, declaring himself to be the Messiah, as he's going into conflict with the serpent in the wilderness, and it says the Spirit led him to do that, 
right? All of those things is, 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 is exactly that, is the Spirit depicting the fact that the final David, the final, you know, the, me- the covenant servant, the messianic redeemer, the temple builder, and the kingdom ruler has arrived, and he's here to establish his kingdom. And all of that is part of, uh, of the kingdom of, of, of the Messiah. And so, um, yeah, so much there. Everybody misunderstood this. Everybody misunderstood this from all sides, even adherents and enemies. Apostles and disciples, they misunderstood it, at least to some degree. The enemies misunderstood it. The scribes, Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, the rulers of this age, as it tells us there in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, that they did not understand who was in their midst. Had they understood, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. You see, so they fully misunderstood it. The true nature of this kingdom redemption will not reach its fullest revelation until the apostolic age of the Spirit at Pentecost. Hallelujah. Because at Pentecost, that's where, you know, the Spirit is going to come in fullness. It's going to reveal to them the nature of the kingdom of God. And he is going to give them a living parable of it. How? Pentecost. What happens at Pentecost? All the nations are gathered in one place. And that is where, you know, he begins to preach. And, you know, the, uh, Peter starts preaching, right? And then how many souls are saved? 3,000 souls are saved on the day of Pentecost in the preaching of Peter. And what does that show? That shows the arrival of what this whole kingdom is going to look like in the present age. It's a spiritual kingdom, you see? And so, uh, yeah, so if you're a dispensationalist, you'll make an error in all this. If you're a theonomist, you will make an error in all of this. Theonomists ironically commit the very same error that dispensationalists do. They're, mortal, they're sworn, sworn mortal enemies, Right? Uh, they actually end up f- committing the same exact error. It is a regression back to Old Testament uh, types and shadows by insisting on a present theocracy. Does that make sense, you guys? Yeah. I mean, think about it. You know, like, even in the Old Testament when the theocracy came, who started the theocracy? It wasn't man. It was God. God is the one who said, you shall be to me a people a kingdom, a kingdom of priests. And here's the law I'm going to give you. And here's the tabernacle you're going to build for me. And here's the land that you're going to dwell in. And this is how you're going to be governed. You see? It wasn't man sitting around going, hmm, we should take the laws of God and create a perfect country, perfect nation. That's not what happened. Uh, the theocracy is a heavenly intrusion to show us something, a small picture of the eternal kingdom of God. That's all it was. And to try to think we're going to go back to that now, we place the concept of power in the wrong place. Why? Because how does the church accomplish its, its task? It's not through the power of the state. It's not through politics. It's not through technology. It's not through any of that. It's by, yeah, it's by what? It's by Jesus Christ coming and cracking the world in half and splitting the skies and establishing his kingdom. That's how it's going to happen. And you can persecute the church. The beast could kill the church. The beast could, you know, kill the saints. He could martyr people left and right. And the power still resides in the kingdom of God. He has done nothing to affect the power of the kingdom. But you see, when you start, when you start looking and operating ba- on the basis of what you physically see, you lose vision. And you lose the vision 
of what we're supposed to really truly be in the nature of the kingdom of God. Any questions? That's a lot of controversy. Let's pray. <laughs> no questions, please. <laughs> no, please, uh, like I said, I mean, please write down questions if you have them. These are huge things. You know, like theonomy is a big deal, you know what I mean? Like, especially online, a lot of guys like to fight over all that, you know? And I get it, you know? I, I understand, like, even pragmatically, why theonomy is attractive to some people because they think like at least they're doing something they're they're advancing the kingdom you know i guess you know they're 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 actually moving and shaking and making things happen they're not just sitting around talking about theology um you know but um but yeah i i'm i'm completely convinced that it's uh it's pretty bad error uh and you know that puts me at odds with a lot of my friends so mhm any questions? No, no questions. You guys are too easy. Sure. Anybody? Anything? Perfect. That means I did my job. Let's uh, let's uh, go to worship because now.